Amen. In the classic Christmas film, Home Alone, Peter and Kate McAllister made plans, paid a price, but they could not guarantee the results. Certainly, they made plans. You think about all that was involved in this Christmas vacation. They were traveling from Chicago to Paris at Christmas time, and not only were they bringing a relatively large family of seven, by the way, if you've never taken five children to the airport, I don't recommend it. They weren't only taking their five children, but they also had invited Peter's brother, Frank, and his wife, and their five children, and their niece, Heather. That's a lot of people. So, when Heather summed up everything after they loaded up the vehicles, she said that fateful morning there was five boys, six girls, four parents, two drivers, and a partridge in a pear tree. But that trip to Paris took more than in advanced planning, Peter McAllister likely paid a hefty price to make that happen. If you remember the film, they flew direct from Chicago to Paris at Christmas time. And that was 15 tickets, four of them in first class. One article, because people have time to do these sorts of things, estimated that the cost for 11 coach and four first class nonstop plane tickets from Chicago to Paris at Christmas time in 1990 was more than $35,000. They made plans, they paid the price, but they could not guarantee the results. Before they even touched down in Paris, they realized that they had left their youngest son, Kevin, home alone. Because you can make plans, pay a price, and not guarantee the results. How many of us can relate with that? How many times have you made plans, maybe big, elaborate, long-term plans only for something to absolutely turn them all upside down? How many times have you paid a price, maybe even an exorbitant price for something that led you absolutely, utterly disappointed? How many times have you personally made plans, paid the price, and not been able to guarantee the result? Does God have the same problem? When God makes a plan and pays a price, can He guarantee the results? This Christmas season, we are taking a break from our study in the Gospel of Matthew to explore the doctrine of the atonement, the truth that God sent His Son to be born to die, to pay the penalty for the sins of His people. Last week, we learned how God planned this atonement before the foundation of the world. Of course, the price that was paid was the very precious blood of Jesus Christ. But here's the question I want us to ask this morning. When God makes a plan and pays a price, can He guarantee the results? Or is He no better than the McAllister's? you look in your Bibles at John chapter 19. We read verses 28 to 30 earlier. We're just focusing on verse 30. In fact, we're really just looking at one word. In the original language, it's three in your English translation. But let me set the context of what's happening. Of course, this is the death of Christ. 
He is on that cross. He has been suffering for now about three hours, enduring the excruciating pain of the cross. This is why He came. He's enduring it. He's endured the wrath of God. He's cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there on the cross, He's thirsty. And the text says, in order to fulfill the Scripture, He says, I thirst. He gets a drink of sour wine. And then Jesus says something that demonstrates that His death was effective. It accomplished everything that God intended to accomplish. In other words, Jesus says something that demonstrates when God makes a plan and pays the price, He guarantees the results. Jesus, look at verse 30, after receiving the sour wine said, one word in the original language, three in our English Bibles. It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. With God's help, I want to ask three simple questions from our text this morning. And as we answer those questions, here's one thing I hope happens in your heart. Christian, I hope you see that God is even bigger and better and more glorious than you imagined Him to be when you walked in this room, that this is a God who makes plans, pays the price, and guarantees with rock-solid certainty the results. Three questions from our text this morning. Number one, what was finished on the cross. What was finished on the cross? Jesus says, Tetelestai, it is finished. What was He talking about? What was finished on the cross? When I was a kid, I used to love reading Sherlock Holmes. I love Holmes as a detective. And Sherlock has this famous saying, he says, when you have eliminated all which is impossible, then whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. So let's eliminate some possibilities for a second. What was finished on the cross? Was it Jesus' miracles? Of course, Jesus' ministry was filled with the miraculous. This is a guy who feeds 5,000 with a Captain D's Happy Meal. This is a guy who walks on water. This is a guy who gives sight to the blind. This is the guy who heals the sick, who raises the dead. When Jesus says it is finished, is he done with his miracles? Is that what he's saying? We know that's not true because Jesus' greatest miracle is yet to come. Jesus' dead heart is going to start beating again. So it's not his miracles. So what was finished? Was it his teaching? Jesus was, of course, an incredible teacher. So many rich lessons are learned from the mouth of Jesus. Think about the Beatitudes. Think about the Lord's Prayer. Think about the prodigal son. Think about these incredible teaching moments that Jesus has scattered throughout His ministry. Is His teaching what's finished? No, because if you read the Gospel of Luke, you learn in Luke chapter 24 that after His resurrection, Jesus teaches His disciples how all the things in the Old Testament were pointing to Him. So, His teaching isn't what was finished on the cross. Maybe it was His humanity. A singer named Joan Osborne famously asked, what if God was one of us? The marvel of the Christmas story is that God became one of us. Now listen, Christian, let me just pause for a second. That should not get old to you. Let me just challenge you to take some time this Christmas season. Maybe for you, this, this season's hard, depressing, discouraging, difficult. Would you just take some time and meditate on the wonder that God became flesh? That's incredible. Is that what ended? Is that what was finished on the cross? Oh, the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, two key moments in the life of Jesus, inform us that Jesus still exists today in His resurrected, glorified body. 
one of us is up in heaven. That ought to absolutely stagger you. That Jesus chose to not merely become a human for a season, 33 years, I can do that, it's fine, and then I can give it up. No, He chose to unite Himself to a human body for forever. So it's not His humanity. Maybe then it's His prophecy. Much of Jesus' ministry is fulfilling prophecy. In fact, even in this story, in our text, He asks for something to drink in order to fulfill prophecy. There's prophecies in Psalm 22 and Psalm 69 that Jesus fulfills simply by saying, I'm thirsty, and being fed to drink sour wine on that cross. So when He says, it is finished, is Jesus saying, well, there it is, that's the last prophecy, check that last box, now I'm done? No. Jesus had yet to be buried in a borrowed tomb, prophesied in Isaiah Isaiah 53. He had yet to rise from death, prophesied throughout the Old Testament. And in fact, we still today are waiting for Jesus to fulfill a host of other prophecies. When we sing Christmas songs like, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, we ought to be thinking about His second coming and asking Him to come and ransom captive Israel. There's prophecy that still needs to be fulfilled at the return of Christ. Well, perhaps when Jesus says, it is finished, He means all His work is done. Maybe this is a a general statement like, the Father on the seventh day rested from all His labors. Is that what Jesus is saying? Okay, I'm done. It's finished. I'm going to rest now. No, I don't think that's it either because uh, if you go to the later in the New Testament, places like Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, say that Jesus is continually working in heaven. You know what Jesus is continually doing in heaven? He's interceding for you. In other words, Jesus in His resurrected body is in front of the throne room before the Father, and He is praying for you, discouraged Christian. He's still working. So that's not what He means. Could it be that Jesus says His suffering is finished? He's been on the cross for three hours. He's endured the wrath of God. Is is He saying that He's not going to suffer anymore? I think we're a little bit closer to the answer here, but not quite. Because if you look at the New Testament, you learn something really interesting about Jesus Incredible story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. You know the story. This man, his livelihood was killing Christians. And he's on his way, he's on a business trip to find some Christians and arrest them and kill them. And he sees this incredible, glorious light and he hears a voice from heaven. It's the voice of Jesus. And Jesus asks, Saul, Saul, why are you what? Persecuting who? me. What is Jesus saying? That when Jesus' people suffer, Jesus suffers too. Let that just encourage you for a second, suffering Christian. When you hurt, He hurts. So, His suffering is not finished. Not until He wipes away the last tear, and maybe, just maybe, when He wipes away that final tear, His own eyes will be moist too. So, what was finished on the cross? I I think the right answer is found in the text itself. That word, it is finished. Like I said, one word in the original language, it's the word tetelestai. And it's a word that refers to the total completion of an activity. It's the entire fulfillment of an obligation. It's the full payment of a debt. That word was often stamped on a purchase or written on a receipt because it meant paid in full. Tetelestai, paid in full. So what was finished on the cross? If you're a note taker, here's the answer. Payment for sin. The payment for sin was finished, paid in 
fool. You can imagine a receipt or a bill of sale, and by saying, Tetelestai, Jesus is stamping with His blood that the bill for that has now been paid in full. This coincides with what Jesus tells us about why He came. Listen to Mark chapter 10, verse 45. This is perhaps the theme verse of Mark's entire gospel. Mark 10, 45. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. That word ransom is a, is a payment. It's a price that you would pay to rescue someone from slavery. Jesus said, I, the Son of Man, I came not to be served, not so you would do things for me, but so I could do something for you. What are you going to do for us, Jesus? I'm going to make a payment. How are you going to do it? By, by my life. I'm going to pay something. When Jesus says, it is finished on that cross, He's referring to the payment for sin. That leads to our second question. What was paid for on the cross? What was paid for on the cross? Knowing exactly what you're paying for matters. So, for example, think of the McAllisters in Home Alone again. Was their payment successful? Well, it depends on what they were paying for. If the McAllisters spent $35,000 simply to say, we touched down in Paris, then their payment was a success. But if they spent that money so that they could have a nice family vacation in Paris, then their payment wasn't successful, was it? Because it didn't work out. So knowing exactly what you're paying for really matters. So what was Jesus paying for on the cross? I want to suggest to you there's really only three options. There's really only three options. I want to walk through these together, but let me give them to you and then we'll walk through them. Jesus could be paying to save everybody. That's option one. Option two, Jesus paid to make everybody savable. Or option three, Jesus paid the price to save His people. Which is right. Jesus paid to save everybody. That's option one. Could it be that when Jesus cries out on that cross, it is finished, He means that now the, the full price, the full payment paid in full for every sin that's ever been committed by every single person has now been done, and now they're all saved? No. We know that's not true because we just have to read the Bible to know Jesus talks a lot about a place called hell. There are those who will not, in the end, be saved. Not everybody is saved. So think of Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. See, the problem with this first option is Jesus didn't merely fail, He's a miserable failure. Because if Jesus died so that everybody would, in fact, be saved, then why are there many who aren't and few who are? It's a problem, isn't it? So, Jesus, when He cries out, it is finished, He must mean something different than that, the, that everybody has now been saved by His death on the cross. So let's consider option two. Jesus paid the price 
to make everybody savable. I think probably this might be what many of us believe. And yet, I think that this is no way near as comfortable as you might think it is. Here's the way this goes. When Jesus said, it is finished, He was saying that He paid for everything on His end, but there's still work that you have to do to respond to His work, and not everybody will be saved because not everybody responds to the gospel. In other words, Jesus died to make everybody savable. Think of this view of Jesus' death like an unfinished bridge. It's very wide, there's lots of room for everybody, but it's only halfway completed. Jesus has done His part of the work to bridge the gap between God and man, but unless we do our part, then we won't be saved. In other words, Jesus died to make you savable. I want to suggest there's a couple of problems with this. One, this is not what Jesus actually says. Jesus didn't say, it is started. What did He say? It's finished. It's finished. Remember, that word means paid in full. Now, just imagine for a second, you have a large credit card bill of, let's say, $15,000, $20,000, and your friend comes up to you and they say, you know what? I've decided to pay your debt for you. And they get a stamp and they stamp on it, paid in full. They give it to you. Merry Christmas. And you're, you're overjoyed, but you're, you've also lived long enough to know you can't trust everybody, and so you go to your website to look at the credit card statement, and you notice it's not quite paid in full. Now, maybe they left 50 bucks on there. Maybe it's 500. Maybe it's 5,000, but regardless, if there's a penny left on that balance, it's not paid in full. When Jesus says paid in full, did He mean paid in mostly full, or did He mean paid in full? Another problem with this understanding of the atonement is that the New Testament consistently presents the cross as effective. In other words, when the New Testament talks about the cross of Jesus, consistently, almost in every single book in the New Testament, talks about the cross doing something. It accomplishes something. Let me just show you some of these. Romans chapter 5 verse 10 says, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say you were reconcilable. It, it doesn't say that, that Jesus died on the cross so that maybe you could be reconciled, but you were actually reconciled. It was accomplished on the cross. Or Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Notice it again. It doesn't say Christ made us redeemable from the curse of the law. It doesn't say Christ made it so that maybe we could, might, hopefully be redeemed, but that He actually redeemed us on the cross. Or Ephesians chapter 1 in Him, we might have redemption through His blood. It's not what it says. What's it say? In Him, we have it. Christian, 
you have redemption through the blood of Christ. Not maybe, not hopefully. You have it. Or Colossians chapter 2, in a text that ought to remind us of this tetelestai language, paying something in full. The text says, God forgave us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us. There's this big record of debt, your sin debt, my sin debt, this huge, massive record, and Jesus cancels it with all of its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. The text does not say that Jesus mostly canceled the record of debt or made it possible that maybe, hopefully, it could be canceled. It says He canceled it. 1 Timothy 1.15, Christ Jesus came into the world. Why? What's it say? To save sinners. Does it say to make sinners savable or to actually save them? Titus 2, 14, Jesus Christ gave Himself for us to do what? To redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works. Jesus didn't die to potentially purify a people, but to actually purify a people. Hebrews 9, verse 12 He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood. Thus, look at the text, securing an eternal redemption. In in what universe is your redemption secure or eternal if Jesus only died to make you savable? 1 Peter 2, 24, He bore our sins in His body on the tree. Why? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By His wounds, here quoting Isaiah 53, by His wounds you might be healed, hopefully can be healed, have been healed. In Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ loves us and has freed us from our sins. How? By His blood. Do you, Christian, there's just a, a handful I could show you dozens and dozens and dozens of Scripture that demonstrate over and over again, Jesus did not die for possibilities. He did not die to make something attainable. He died to accomplish something. And when He says it is finished, what He died to accomplish has been accomplished may not yet be applied in the life of each individual, but it's been accomplished. If Jesus merely died to make everybody savable, then God cannot guarantee the results. There's an old Merle Haggard song. It goes like this. I turned 21 in prison doing life without parole. No one could steer me right, but Mama tried. Mama tried. Mama tried to raise me better, but her pleading I denied. That leaves only me to blame, because Mama tried. Christian, God is not a Mama tried kind of God. His grace is so much bigger and better than that. When God makes a plan and the Son pays 
the price. God guarantees the results. Which leads to, I think, the correct understanding of what Jesus paid on the cross. Jesus paid to save His people. Jesus paid to save His people. So when Jesus cries out on the cross, Tetelestai, it is finished, He's saying that everything that is necessary to redeem His people has been accomplished. Again, it's not yet applied in those who have not yet repented and believed. You were not, Christian, born saved. You, you had to repent and believe. And the old hymn says, there to my heart was the blood applied, right? That's when the blood is applied, but it was accomplished on the cross. It was done on the cross. It was finished. So in this view, Jesus' death is like this bridge. No, it's not as wide as the other bridge. This bridge is much more narrow, and fewer people can get across it. But there's something infinitely better about this bridge. It's complete. The chasm is completely bridged from one side to the other. On the cross, everything necessary to bridge the chasm between a holy God and sinful people has been finished. It's been accomplished. This, I would argue, is the consistent teaching of the New Testament. It's all over the New Testament. Let me just show you a few places. Matthew 1, verse 21 the angel Gabriel says to Joseph in a dream, you remember Joseph is ready to divorce Mary to put, her, to put her away quietly because of what he's heard about her being pregnant. He knows he's not the father, but the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. Jesus died to save His people. Or, Mark 10, 45, we read it earlier, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Jesus gave His life not as a partial payment for everybody, but as a full payment for His people. Or, Another text, John chapter 10, verse 11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Who are the sheep? The people of God. Or Acts chapter 20, Paul exhorts the Ephesian elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Jesus shed His blood to purchase a people. Or Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, the saints around the throne room of heaven sing, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seal, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Hear me, Christian, Jesus died for people, not possibilities. And those people included people from every tribe and tongue, all sorts of people. Jesus died to save. So here's what we're saying. I want to be as clear as I can be. Jesus' death did not pay the penalty for everybody's sins. Otherwise, it would not make sense for unbelievers to suffer in hell if their sin debt had already been paid at the cross. Let me ask you a question. Does God punish twice for, this, for one sin? Or does He punish once for each sin? 
if Jesus paid the penalty for every sin, for every person, then nobody should go to hell. There should be no sin debt left for anyone to pay. But the Bible's clear that there will be some in hell. Jesus' death didn't mostly pay the penalty to make everybody savable. Listen, dear brother, sister, a partial payment for your sin isn't encouraging. It isn't. Because what if I don't do enough? What if I mess it up? What if Jesus did half of the bridge and I only get 49% of my half? gap hasn't been bridged. It's not really encouraging if any of it hangs on you. What we're saying is that when Jesus died on the cross, He was paying the penalty for the sins of His people. This includes every Old Testament saint who trusted in the promises of God. This includes every New Testament saint who repented and believed in the gospel. This includes anyone today who has repented of their sins and put their trust in Jesus. This includes you today, dear unbelieving friend, if you will, repent and believe in Jesus. And, and I think also, it also includes millions upon millions of aborted and miscarried babies as well as those who die without the ability to understand right from wrong, was finished on the cross. This doctrine is sometimes called limited atonement, although I prefer the terms particular redemption or, or definite atonement. Some object to this doctrine because they say, well, what are, you, are you saying that God doesn't love the world? Of course He does. The Bible's clear. God so loved the world that He gave His Son. But this doctrine teaches that Jesus has a special love for His people. This is clear in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, where Paul writes, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her. Let me ask the wives in the room for a second. Imagine you ask your husband after the service, do you love me? And he says, sure, I love you like I love all the other women. How encouraging would that be? Men, don't try that, not even for fun. Don't do it. That's not encouraging. What you want, wives, is you want special love. You want particular love. You want definite love. You want specific love. That's what Jesus has for His people. That's what He has for you. When Jesus cried out, it is finished on the cross, He was doing so because He had paid in full all the sins, past, present, and future of all His people. That is glorious good news. Now, let me ask a final question. How do we respond to this doctrine? How do we respond to this doctrine? Well, let me suggest a few different ways, depending upon where you are this morning. First of all, if you're not a Christian in this room, repent and believe the gospel. Repent simply means to turn away. Turn away from your sins. Believe is to trust. Not to believe the way people talk about believing in Santa Claus or believing their team is going to win the, the, the national championship or whatever. Believing, putting your weight on something. Turn from your sins and trust in Jesus. Listen to me. I promise you, if you repent and believe, you will be saved. Some people, when they hear about this doctrine, and man, I, I'll be honest with you, it'll get your head scratching a little bit. It'll throw you for a loop if you really dive deep into it. And some people think, well, this discourages me from telling people about Jesus. No, it doesn't. 
No, it doesn't. Because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. The Bible teaches that clearly. If you will repent and believe, you will be saved. So do it. Call upon Him. You can do it right where you are. If you're in this room and you're not a follower of Jesus, you can just stop in your mind and your heart and say, Jesus, I believe, save me. And you will be saved. John chapter 6, verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. If you come to Him in repentance and faith, He will not say no to you. I promise you. The authority of the Word of God, you will be saved. For the Christians in this room, second point of application is to proclaim the good news. If you're not a Christian, repent and believe. If you are a Christian, proclaim the good news. And again, sometimes when we zoom out and see the bigness of God and salvation like we're doing this Christmas, the temptation is to think, well, it doesn't really matter if I tell anybody about Jesus. I mean, God's going to do what God's going to do. It doesn't really matter what I do. If you read the book of Acts, you will see incredible stories of God saving people in incredible ways. And yet, He always uses people. Saul, on the road to Damascus, is sent to somebody who tells him about Jesus. The Ethiopian eunuch gets a special visit from Philip, the evangelist. Cornelius has a, a messenger tells him to go to Peter and hear the good news from Peter. These angels are appearing to people, and they could just tell him the gospel, but God chooses to save through messengers like you and like me. Jesus says something astonishing in John chapter 10, verses 14 to 16. He says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Listen to this phrase. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. Jesus is saying, I have my sheep, those that are my followers, you disciples, my sheep, but I've got other sheep that aren't a part of this fold yet. Who are they? Everybody who had yet to repent and believe in the gospel. That was including you, Christian. Your, your great, 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 great grandparents weren't even born yet. And Jesus is thinking about you, and He says, I've got other sheep that aren't of this fold, but they're going to hear my voice, and they're going to be a part of my people. Just imagine, if you're still thinking, well, why, you know, why don't we need to send missionaries? Why don't we need to share the gospel? Why don't we need to do all these things? God's going to do whatever He wants to do. This doctrine should actually give you more confidence to share the gospel. Because it means God is going to save. Maybe not every time, maybe not every person, but some. So imagine I took you to a high school locker room, and there's hundreds of lockers in this locker room, and I give you a key, and I tell you, this key will unlock some of these lockers. Not all of them, but some. And every locker that this key unlocks has a big stack of cash in it. Now, let's just say you believed me for a second. And if you did, would you give up after trying one or two lockers? I would think not. I would think if you really believed that there's a guarantee that this key will open some, then you would keep going. And Jesus is telling us, there are some. I have sheep that are not of this fold. Why do you live in Yorktown or Hampton or Pocosin or Newport News? Because Jesus has sheep not yet of this fold, and they're in your arm's reach, and He intends for you to get the gospel to them. So, proclaim the good news. A third application is simply to praise God 
stop for a moment and rejoice in the greatness of God. Imagine two Christmas presents. One is a white elephant gift. There's no white elephant, right? Dirty Santa, Yankee Swap. You're getting lots of blank stares. You, everybody gets together, and you buy a random gift, and you put it in a bag, and you don't know who it's for, right? But somebody's going to get it. So we had a white elephant Christmas party with our staff and elders at our house last week, and we bought the best white elephant gift ever. It was cockroach chip clips, chip clips that look like cockroaches. And they were fantastic. Mike Clausen ended up with those gifts, with that gift. It, it wasn't like a revenge thing for the Ohio State-Michigan game or anything like that. It just happened that way. We didn't buy it thinking about anybody. We just bought it. But you think about your white elephant gift that you took home from your Christmas party. Think about the gift that somebody put time into because they were thinking about you. When you understand this doctrine, you understand your salvation is not a white elephant gift. God is not up in heaven. I'm going to send my son. I don't know who's going to receive. I don't know who's going to become a Christian, but somebody's going to, they're going to get it. That's not how it worked out, Christian. He was thinking about you by name. You were on his heart before he said, let there be light. And when Jesus cried out, Tetelestai, on the cross, every sin you would ever imagine of committing was paid for. All of it. Praise God. In just a minute, we're going to close our service and we're going to sing, Jesus paid all. And here's just a practical application for you. Would you sing it like you believe it? Here's another application. Love specifically. If God loved you specifically, shouldn't you also love His people specifically? One author put it like this. If God loved us specifically, we are to love one another not only unconditionally, but specifically, practically, personally. We, we don't operate with a vague positive sense that we love people, love humanity, love the world. We operate out of a specific sense of loving the person in front of us. He continues, here is one simple, meaningful thing you could do. Learn the names of the people in your church. Remember them. Call them by name. No, no more, hey, brother, Their name is written down in the Lamb's book of life. Let it be on your mind and heart too. Love leads us to truly know one another. If we know the definite design of the atonement, but there is no definite love among us, we have misunderstood the design of the atonement, end quote. In other words, because God had you on His mind when He sent His Son to die for you. Have each other on your minds when you gather here to worship that Savior. And one final application, Christian, rest in the cross. One of the most glorious verses in all the Bible is Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Have you ever wondered how that can be true? How can it be true that now there's no condemnation? God's holy. I'm really messed up. How can it be that God looks at me in all my filth and He says, no condemnation? How can that possibly be? Because all of the condemnation that you deserved was actually paid for on the cross by Jesus with you in mind. The reason there is no condemnation is because Jesus has already endured it 
in your place. In 1989, a pastor in Lexington, Kentucky named Elder D.J. Ward preached a sermon that powerfully illustrated this point. Rather than quoting him to conclude this sermon, I just want you to pay attention to the screen and then we'll stand and sing together. I contend this morning that the death of Christ was not an attempt. It was an accomplishment. Now, brothers and sisters, when one accomplishes something, it means somewhere they had to have an assignment. Well, what was the assignment? His name shall be called Jesus. For he shall save, not attempt to save, not try to save, not hope to save, not want to save, but he shall save his people from their sin. Is that right? I said, is that right? Now I hear this. I hear this. I hear it on televisions. I hear it in churches. That God has done all he can do. The rest is up to you. If the rest is up to you, then he didn't accomplish it. If anything is up to you, he didn't accomplish it. I've even heard this. You've got to help God save you. He can't do it by himself. If God cannot do it by himself, then he didn't accomplish it. He's a false God. He's a liar. And you best not trust him. If he didn't do it, then we ought to stop singing. Jesus paid it all, saying he paid some of it. Now, brothers and sisters, if he did not accomplish it, we are here in vain. And you can have all of the religion you want. If this was not accomplished, we're going to hell. It's just that blunt, it's just that simple, it's just that clear. But if he did do it, he doesn't need your best, and your works need not speak for you. If he did do it, you can leave here rejoicing that your sins are now under the blood, and he stands as your substitute, your mediator, before God this morning, pleading the blood, pleading his blood, that perfect sacrifice, that holy attainment, he's pleading the blood. You can rest that all of my sins are under that blood. Did he accomplish it? Did he fail? Do we need Mohammed to come after him? Do we need another prophet after him? I declare this morning, he paid it all. He paid it all. Every drop of it. Every sin I was going to commit. Every sin I thought about committing. He nailed it to his cross. And I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul.